This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so now we're speaking about a topic that when you hear about this topic, you probably are like, you know what, that's a nice topic. Yeah, maybe I'll listen to it. It sounds nice. Whoever doesn't know the topic, the topic is called uh, Never Giving Up and keep on going. So it, it seems like it's a nice topic, but the truth of the matter is, is that this type of topic is the essence of so many solutions to your problems. And the problem where it arises is, is that sometimes you know the solutions, but you can't implement into it into your problem. Like it's very easy to give advice, but it's very hard to implement it into your own life. There are many times, and this is a question that I had actually asked me last night, I get a class last night, and one of the guys asked me, they were like, so they go to me, they're like, Rabbi, because you speak to so many people, and you deal with so many things, when things implement in your own life, do you also, you know, you, do you have like, the, you know, the answers already, because you're dealing with this in the day-to-day uh, life with other people? And I thought that it was a fantastic question. And the answer is yes and no. Because at one point, yes, I already know what the answer is if I've dealt with it, and I've given advice for other people on it. But the other point, I'm biased. Because I'm living through it, I'm going through it. So there is sort of a you know a balance that you have to that you have to do, and this is why I, you know every person should have a rabbi, every rabbi should have a rabbi, every rabbi's rabbi should have a rabbi, everybody should have a rabbi. Um, so because you always need some sort of of a buffer where you need to have where you're not biased. The foundation of this type of topic. So let, let's actually, let, let's back it up before we actually get into that. We've been speaking about emuna. We've been speaking about bitachon. We've been speaking about things that should really influence and change your life for the better. The way that we have been going, the, the, the um, I guess the route that we've been going was that first we know that everything's from God. Everything's from Hashem. Then we know that even though everything's from Hashem, we still have the obligation to do our hishtadlut. We still have to do our effort in our day-to-day life in order to get whatever it is that we want. So when we put those two equations together, and, and granted they're conflicting, and granted they're very hard to, to uh, deal with, and this is what we spoke about for about six classes, but once you get past that, and you done your ishtadlut, and you gave the emunah to God, and now you're sort of like, okay, but but I wasn't answered still. But but I have, I did all my ishtadlut. I've, you know, I am this age, you know, old, and I'm still not married. I am been suffering for this disease for this amount of time. I've been trying panasa for this amount of time, and I'm still not getting any answers. And I have emunah, I have bitachon, and I know that I'm doing my hishadut, and yet I'm still not not getting what I want. So what does it go fall back on? It falls back on, okay, fine, I guess I give up. Maybe this is what God wants for me. Maybe this is where God wants me to, to, to be. And the problem is, is that this leads into a, a, a spiraling, you know, self-wallowing, a depression of sorts that, that you sort of feel like, okay, maybe this is, my, this is what God wants for my life. And by the way, this goes for every single area of your life. It could be in dating, it could be in business, it could be in relationship, it could be with your children, it could be you don't have any children and you want children. It could be that your religious level. Some people try to become more religious and they try and they keep on falling and they try and they keep on falling. There's so many things that they want to do and they can't grow and they can't get out. So they say, you know, maybe this is the way that God wants me to, um, to, to, to go. That's the positive. What about the negative? What about people that are in a situation that they can't get out of? Not something that you want to get from where you are to better, but what happens if you're in the hole? And now you're trying to get out of the hole and you still can't, can't get it. You're in debt and you can't get out of it. You're going and you're in an abusive relationship and you can't get out of it. So the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes, 
I was thinking if I should mention this or not, but I'm going to mention it. Sometimes it's your fault. Some, I, I've spoken to, spoken to a couple that they had you know, certain situations in their relationship. It wasn't going so well. And I told them, you need to go to therapy. They're like, no, I don't believe in therapy. And I'm like, you know, listen, I don't know what you believe in or what you don't believe in. You need therapy. They're like, no, therapy doesn't work. I know therapy doesn't work. So many people tell me therapy doesn't work. So I'm like, listen, I can't, you know, like, what more do you want me to tell? I'm telling you, here's your solution. You're like, no. Anything else? Maybe you have a catalyst. You know how many times I get that question? Maybe you have a catalyst that could do a magic spell on me. And then, you know, I'll be a multi-billionaire married with a bunch of kids living in Israel and Florida at the same time. Like, maybe you'll have somebody that will come knocking on my door and there will be Prince Charming. He'll be on a horse and he'll have a sword and he's not going to get arrested. And this is the guy that I am going to go and marry. And they're like, no, maybe you should go out on dates and stop being so picky. Like, come on, do you have a capitalist or not? Like, go on, just be, be straight up. Like, who is going to do it is going to go heebie-jeebie-jeebie on me, and then everything is going to go away. And so sometimes it's our fault when we're thinking we're doing our effort. We are having our emunah bitachon, but it's still, to a certain point, our, point, our fault. And I tell this to, I, I've, I've been telling this to this couple, I'm like, go to therapy. I don't believe in it. I'm like, this is your solution. You're calling me up X amount of times per month, and I'm telling you, this is your solution. And you're still not listening. I'm telling you, this is your answer. They still don't want to go. This has must have been going on for, I would say, over two years. Over two years. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you like this. There's certain cases that people, like, like I've sent them to other rabbis. And other rabbis have given up. And they've even told me. I had a, a rabbi that called me up and said, on a certain case, stop dealing with this person. This person is, is you know... You know, like, just, just leave it. It's, there's nothing that you're going to do to help. To, you, nothing you're going to be able to help or, or say that's going to change their mind. I, 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 I'm like, okay, I took, you know, I'm like, thank you for your advice, but I can't do that. If somebody calls me up, even if though I have to say it a thousand times, I can't tell somebody no. And the reason for that is, is that sometimes just speaking to somebody helps them. So whether or not they're actually going to come into the fruition of actually doing what I say is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to be there for people and to be able to go and help them wherever they need to be helped, even though they don't, they don't go and they don't listen. But when they go and they start saying, well, God is not listening to me, I'm like, well, many times it's your fault. Many times it's you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So we're not talking about that case. We're talking about a case that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're questioning, how do I know if I'm, I'm doing something right or I'm not doing something right? Then you have to go and ask a rabbi. That's when you go and ask a rabbi. If a rabbi says go to therapy and you decide not to go to therapy and you're not happy, don't blame this on God. Don't go and blame this on your husband. Go blame this on yourself because this is something that you have the solution. You have what you need to do, but you decide you don't want to do it. This works in dating as well. People that are very, very picky in dating and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to tell this to somebody while they're dating. I, I tend to do so, even though I probably shouldn't because it insults <laughs> them. But, uh, you know, sometimes you're, you're too picky and you have no reasons to be picky. And sometimes, you know, that's very hard to hear. Be like, what do you mean? My mommy told me that I'm an angel and I deserve the best. <laughs> and I'm like, you could be president. I'm not going to say that you can't be president. When it comes to dating... That's where I draw president. What we've seen, anybody can become president. <laughs> so, but for to finding your soulmate, yeah, that you have to be a little bit more smarter about it. So, we all know the the concept that God is in control of everything in our uh, in our lives, and we also know the power and the ability of our prayers, the power and the ability of our to uh, our uh, you know ability to go and ask and pray and desire and even do certain mitzvot to get what we want. But then we feel 
like, well, is God listening? Like, is really, is, is, I, I don't see any changes in, that, in my life. So one thing that um, we, need to, uh, we need to know that, you know, it says in Tehillim, that God is always listening to, uh, uh, to everything. Do you know how to uh, mute everybody here? That mutes me. Me. Does this mute everybody? Okay. Anyways, so. Oh, there we go. Please stay tuned. More. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, anyways, so um, where were we? So, no matter what you do and what you're going through. You have to know that Hashem always listens to your prayers. Hashem always listens to everything, even if you don't see the solution. Yes, sometimes it's your fault. Yes, sometimes it's out of your control. But one thing's for sure that every prayer, every single act of chesed that you do, thank you, every single thing that 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 you're going for towards your goal, Hashem sees, Hashem understands, and Hashem takes that into the calculation. Rav Moshe Sher was um, once working very adamantly to go and to... Uh, to make sure that a bill doesn't pass, and this bill would be very detrimental to the uh, to the Jewish community. And he worked tirelessly; he pulled every connection possible to get what he needed. And at the end, he was successful. So, you know, there was a um, a member of the Agudas Israel went and asked Rabbi Shira, says, "How did you have the power to go through it? It's very, very difficult when you're going and you're trying to do something, and you, the doors are keep on closing on you, and to keep on pushing, it's something that's very, very difficult. How did you do it?" So the rabbi goes and responds and says, I accredit this to my mother. And he said when he was younger, he was running a very, very high temperature, like a dangerous high temperature, and things were not looking too good in the future for this uh, little Moshe Sher. And his mother called the doctor, and the doctor prescribed a certain medication. So she ran to the pharmacy to go and fulfill this, this medication. And they were extremely, extremely poor. They didn't have any money. And the, the, the pharmacist wasn't there. The assistant was there. And the assistant goes and says, it's, it's X amount of money. And she's like, all I have is a few pennies. That's all I have. This is, I, I, I went through my entire house. This is everything that I have. Please, can you give me the medication? And the assistant felt bad. The assistant felt for this, for this mother and for the little baby. And he says, you know what, fine. He took the few cents that she had and he, he gave her the medication. She was su- such in a rush to get home because she wanted to give the baby the medication that she started running home. And as she was running, she tripped and in slow motion, the medication bottle started falling through the ear. Now, this is in the olden days before they had the plastics, and it was made of glass. And in slow motion, it fell onto the floor, and it shattered in a million pieces. And she was sitting over there, and she started. She felt her whole world came crashing down. Her son is sick, sick to the point that it's dangerous, that he might pass away. And she finally got the medication. She gave everything that she had for this medication, and now it's all over the sidewalk. And she quickly, she doesn't know what to do. She starts picking up the shards of glass. There's a little bit of medication left in the, you know, in the bottle. She's thinking, okay, maybe I'll let me run home. Let me give him this. And she's like, you know what? I'm so close to the pharmacy. Let me go back. Maybe, maybe they'll have mercy in their heart. And she takes the shards of glass. She takes a little medication that's left. And she runs back to the pharmacy. She gets back to the pharmacy. And the pharmacist is there. And she goes to the pharmacist. And she says, listen, your assistant was so kind. was so nice. And he gave me the medication that I needed. He says, but unfortunately, it fell. Please, I have no money left. Can you please give me a refill of this medication? And the pharmacist takes the medication. He looks at the medication. He looks at the diagnosis. He looks at the prescription. And he starts smelling the medication. The puzzled look on his, on his face. And he's like, he's like, you know, God must love you. And she's like, please do explain because I don't see that over here. And he's like, this medication is so detrimental to your son that if he would have taken it, 
he would have died. He would have not. This was a wrong medication. Again, this is something that wouldn't happen today because of lawsuits. But back then, when people are honest, he was like, this was the wrong medication. And the, the pharmacist ran, got their correct medication, and gave it to this uh, to the mother of Rabbi Shashar, who ran home and gave it to her uh, to her son, who later recovered. And when she repeated the story, she always would, uh, you know, she would say when when she fell and the bottle broke, she thought her world ended. This is the end. this is the, that was it. It was it was gone. Like there's no type of love that a mother has for her. There's no love. There's nothing else that exists on planet Earth like a mother's love for a child. The mo- mother who carried the child for nine months. The mother who went and nursed the child and brought the child up. This destroyed her life. And she felt that when the bottle broke, that's it. Her world is over. And the lesson that she took from that is that sometimes when you think that the end of the world is happening to you, that's really where the beginning of the salvation actually happens. Because her end of the world was really the beginning of her salvation because she got the wrong medication. And she would have ended up killing her son. So rather when seeing the bad, sometimes the bad is really the best thing possible. We all know the famous story Rabbi Akiva, which I mentioned in the Emunah series numerous times. And you should review it Numerous times as well. This is a, the Gemara in Bachot, page 60b, that goes and says that Rabbi Kiva was traveling. Because we said it so fast, so many times, I'm going to go fast, faster. She goes, uh, no, she, I'm already in the next story. Rabbi Akiva is, is, is going and he is uh, traveling on the road. He has a donkey, he has a rooster, and he has a candle. And he stops by a certain town and he says, please, do you have any rooms? And they were like, I'm sorry, there's a convention going on, or whatever was going on, and there was, all the rooms were booked. He had no other choice, but he had to go into the forest and sleep in the forest. And what did he say? Everything that God does, everything that God does is for the best. So he goes and he sits into the forest. He has his candle, it's lit. And he's sitting over there and he's learning to walk. And there's a wind that comes and blows out the candle. And he says, everything that God does, God does for the best. A short while later, a cat comes and eats the rooster that was supposed to wake him up. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting upset, everything's for the best. He had a donkey that he was traveling on. A short while later, another animal came and ate it. And he said again, everything is for the best. And then he went to sleep. When he woke up, he saw the entire town was decimated. There was, it looked like there was a war zone because there was a war zone going on. There was a bunch of bandits that came through town and they ran through the entire town. They stole, they murdered a t- tremendous amount of people. And if Rabbi Akiva would have been in town, he would have been part, part of the casualties. And if he would have been in the forest and his candle would have been on, he would have also would have been part of the casualties. And if he would have been in the forest and the candle wasn't on, but he still had the rooster or the donkey that would have made noise, he would have also would have been part of the casualties. So sometimes only at the end do we see how the disaster was really not for a disaster at all, but it was really the greatest blessing that we could possibly have. You have many people that they kind of give up on God. They kind of give up on Hashem. They're like, you know what? I'm done. You know, after all what I've went through. Oh, oh do I like that? That's I'm like, please. You know, like some, by the way, some people do really go through a lot. Majority of people are just a bunch of wimps that haven't been to the Israeli army yet. So they go, and I, and, and I say, please tell me why. I was a particular atheist that I remember. I was, uh, I was speaking to him and he was like, when I speak to God, I don't know, don't ask me how that works. He's an atheist and he's going to speak to God. But whatever it is, he says, when I speak to God, he says, I'm going to have some questions for him. And I'm like, like, what type of questions? He's like, how could you let the Holocaust happen? I'm like, that's a great question. I'm like, let me ask you, do you have any relatives that went through the Holocaust? they like, no, but how could it happen? They're like, yeah, no, that's a good question. Like, what other questions are you going to ask him? 
And then he, then he said something very interesting. He's like, how could there be a God if there's starving children in Africa? And I'm like, that is a great question. I'm like, let me ask you a question. Um, how much did you donate to the starving children in Africa? And he's like, well, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty sure for like 36 cents, you could feed an entire tribe. So like, how many times did you, do- like, I want to know what's your volume of your donations to, uh, to this tribe in Africa that's starving children with iPhones, obviously, but like the starving children, like how many do you have? So he's like, like, no, I, I didn't donate. I'm like, why not? I'm like, you have so many questions. Like, why don't you donate? And this particular person did have money. He was successful in business. And I'm like, why didn't you donate? So I'm like, you don't have a problem with the Holocaust. It's something personal to you. You don't have a problem with the children in Africa. You don't care about anybody that, that's going on. Because if you would, you would go and you would go and you, you would donate some money to them. But rather what is happening over here, you have an issue. And your issue is with God. You don't want to hear God. You don't want to hear anything about that. So now you're finding where you're going to go and you're going to place the blame on it. Like it, the, one of the most common things that I've had when I speak to people that were religious and then they went to yeshiva and then afterwards they went off. Like what happened? Like, you know what my teacher did to me? Like, he hit me one time. I'm like, with your personality, you probably deserved it. <laughs> you probably, you know, again, not the, always the best person to speak to. I grant that. But I'm like, I'm like, really, that's where you're going to go and draw the line because somebody hit you when you were younger? Like, really, that's where like, oh, if this is what Judaism represents, then this is what I don't want to have anything to do with it. Like, What? So one rabbi, had, maybe the rabbi wasn't justified. Maybe the rabbi was, has an anger problem, and maybe the rabbi shouldn't have been a rabbi. But does that mean that, you're, that, that that's what all Orthodox Judaism represents? Absolutely not. Yes, many people go through hard times in their life. And I don't want to, you know, I don't intend to, to put them down. I, I, know, I know people go through very, very great difficulties in life. Excuse my grammar and English, they go through very great difficulties, and they go through troubling times, and it's very, very difficult, and I'm not downplaying that, but when you're going, and you're trying to say, okay, like, this is what it represents, that's not what it represents, since when, what happens if somebody goes, and, um, and let's say, you know, it, it, it gets caught as a drug dealer, are you going to say, okay, this must have been from the Mexican cartel, Without looking at it, but like, wow, that's very racist. Why would you assume that they're Mexican? Maybe there's some other nationality. So you know what racism is. You know where it defines and where it lies. But yet when it comes to Orthodox Judaism, when you have a problem with one being, with one person, that reflects the entire, the entire uh, you know, Judaism. Now, I can't speak about what I'm about to speak about because I didn't do enough research on it. But yesterday I had this question that came to me. What about this? There's something called unorthodox. I think that's what it's called, unorthodox, which is some sort of documentary i believe it is I, i'm not that that basically shows how bad orthodox judaism is yeah how bad uh, hasidic you know judaism is whatever it is so so somebody went and asked me what do i think about it and i said i can't have an opinion because i didn't i don't know i i didn't see yeah i i really i don't know very very little about it i don't intend to i don't um i don't know enough about it but i'll tell you one thing that i can tell you off the off the top that when somebody goes and has a bad experience and then goes and assumes that the entire religion is like that, that's somebody that's a racist, that's somebody that has a lot of what the lefties would like to call very bad character traits, very bad midot. They, you know, that, that you can't justify one thing. Like, and the example that I gave is that you have Islamic people. There are some great Islamic people. There are some people that are great. They, they, they do unbelievable things. 
But yet, the second that you see somebody with a turban, you think that they're going to blow you up. All of a sudden, now you're you're afraid. Well, that's racism also. Yes, a Jew shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't, you know, it's not a random check when you check everybody that has a turban. That's not the correct way to, to, to go about doing it. But that's considered racism. But when it comes to your own nationality, when it comes to your own religion, this all of a sudden is where it's like, no, no, no. This is what, or, on, with what Orthodox Judaism represents. This is what Hasidic Judaism represents. You want... Whenever you're dealing with, let's say, uh, two sides of a story, and I'll give you an example. When you're dealing with couples, let's say, that have maybe a shalom bite issue, they have a uh, some problems in the you know in the home you know regarding uh, um, marital uh, what's what's shalom bite in English? Marital issues. Yeah, marriage issues. Marital issue. Yeah. So. Peace in the home. When they don't have anything, you. When they don't have peace in the home. So what happens? You have the wife comes and tells you a story. And then the husband comes and tells you a story. Now any therapist or rabbi that deals with this knows that none of them are saying the truth. Because there's his side, there's her side, and then there's the right side. Generally speaking, she's more right than him. But that's generally speaking. But that's not, that's not always. So um, the, the idea is that you know there's always two sides to the story. So how come all of a sudden, when there is something that comes out against Judaism, you don't think about the other side? So many people are like, oh, this is what Judaism represents. No, that's, that's a very, very twisted. There is her side. And granted, I don't know her side. I don't know. And it's possible she had a very abusive, problematic side to, to orthodoxy. And it's very possible that she had a very bad upbringing. And I don't blame her. I don't judge her. I don't do anything. I mean, maybe for the fact that she's spilling out all the dirty, dirty, her own dirty laundry and using the world as her therapist. But besides that, again, I don't know, so I can't say. I'm just saying maybe I would say that, but I'm not saying that. So the concept of, of the fact being that you're just listening to one side is biased opinion. That's not correct. That, who said that's the correct? This is what orthodoxy represents. This is what Hasidic Judaism represents. Absolutely not. So anyways, I digress. But going moving forward, the never giving up, right? Okay, never give up on orthodoxy. Even if you, God forbid, see something that's unorthodox e. Okay, so there was once a king, and this king went, and he, um, he built this, this palace, and he put, more like a tower, and he put a ladder on, this, on this, uh, this huge, huge tower. And he said, there was like a little bell on top of that, sort of like what you see in a carnival. And in the olden days, I guess, nowadays you just go across. And the, the trick was, is that, well, the trick, the caveat was that the king put a declaration. He said he has a daughter that's ready for marriage. And I don't know if he didn't... Whenever these stories happen, I don't know if the kings don't love the daughter and this is how they choose their next prince or maybe they have multiple... I don't know, whatever it was, the way that he was going to go and marry off his daughter is whoever can reach and hit the bell, that's who's one who's going to marry the, the daughter and is going to get a great reward. I, I can't understand these stories, but it's a much like a parable. It's like someone who owns a carnival... Um, and is a multi-billionaire, and he says, if you want to marry my daughter, you got to pass this obstacle course, and then you get to marry my daughter. I don't care about anything else. No, you could be an angry... Br- as long as you have coordination, and you have the ability to go, then we're good. So anyways, this king went, and he built this tower, he had this, this ladder. And when everybody heard that they go and they marry the, 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 the daughter of the, of the king, Again, I don't know who's coming to these things. They've never seen the daughter. Who knows? Maybe, you know, whatever. Okay, now let's not get into that. But, like, they're coming. So maybe they deserve each other. I don't know. Hashem is mezavig zivugim. So anyway, so the king didn't make it a simple ladder. He made it at a few rungs, sort of like break in middle. 
and then you fall right back down. You have one chance. And you have all these giborim, all these strong men. They're climbing up the ladder and they're going, they're, they're, they're running up. They get to a certain point and they fall right back down. And uh, then, you know, they try going from the sides, climbing, but then that breaks. The king had, you know, engineers working in this and nothing is going. There's one guy that's sitting and he's watching everything. And one week after another week, all the, he didn't take his turn yet. And he's sitting there and he's observing and he's studying, he's taking his notes. And he sees one after another leave. And he says, there's got to, and it looks like there's no hope. It looks like there's no way, maybe the king wanted some entertainment, right? He didn't have anything uh, YouTube related to go to waste his time. So he says, you know what, this is going to be my entertainment. And he goes and he's sitting over there and week after week, people are falling down. And nobody's, he said, there must be a way. If the king did this, there must be a way that the, that to reach that belt. And he's going over there and he sees what everybody's tactics are trying to use and they're all failing. Finally, he goes and he decides there, there's got to be a way. He couldn't figure it out. He says, but there's got to be a way. And he memorized which rungs are the rungs that, that fall open and they break down. And he walked up to, and then what he did was, is he jumped. He jumped another, another two rungs. And then he did that. He kept on going until he gets to like a really big space that nobody passed. And he's thinking, he says, if the king made it that this would be a possibility, which he did, then there must be something that's strong that I could eventually hold up. So what he did is that he held really, really strongly on where he's holding. He sprang off with his with the biggest power that he possibly had, and he reached to the highest that he possibly could. And he finally went, and he finally reached that top rung, and it didn't break. And he was able to continue up, and he ended up marrying the daughter, and they lived happily ever after, and blah, blah, blah. All that nonsense. What does... Hashem wants, is that many times in our life, we try for something. And we're reaching up. And we see that it do, it's not successful. And then we try again. And we see it's not successful. And we look at other people. And they're not successful. And we look at other, somebody else. And they're not successful. And we're like, what does God want from us? Like, he put us in our situation, but he's not giving us the salvation that we want. He's not giving us the, 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 the root out that we need. What Hashem tells every single one of us is there's always a way out. Sometimes you have to jump a little bit higher. But there's always, always a way out. And that's why in the difficult situation, you should never, never lose hope. You should never, never lose faith because there's always that rung in the ladder that you have to reach to. During World War II, Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky was, um, it's like everybody who went through the Holocaust, went, went through a very, very difficult time. And in fact, Rabbi Galinsky went and he lost his entire family. And when he left, when he, when he was able to get out of the, out of the Holocaust, the he ended up getting remarried, but he needed some chizuk. He needed some 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 encouragement. So he went to the chazonish, and he asked the chazonish. Says, you know, how could how could people continue? How could people go and continue after such horrific tragedies? And I'm not talking about this is not a tragedy that somebody you know a rabbi looked at the child wrong and they mm, I don't like the orthodoxy and he run, runs off. Is this somebody? This is, you're talking about people a generation that went through the worst most Difficult time possible in, uh, you know, in the world and, and, and got out of it. And they say, so what are we supposed to do? I don't know if anybody, my wife actually just sent me something today where the, I don't know if anybody ever seen this, where the Saudi Arabia um, delegates or something all of a sudden started learning about the Holocaust. You ever seen that? All of a sudden they started, you know, realizing what the Holocaust, they had no idea. They had no idea what the Holocaust was and what people went through. And you could see people... From Saudi Arabia, like I'm assuming it's high standing officials, they were in tears. They were in tears when they had no idea what was going on. And talking about people that lived through it. And they, um, when you get through such a low point and, and you need some sort of strength to continue, 
So you look for different areas of strength. And Rabbi Galinsky goes over to the Chazanish and says, please, you know, what is it? What's the source of strength that we could use for this? So the Chazanish goes and says, there was a small town in Kovno that there was a poor family. And the father of this family, he would go and he would um, do a little bit of type of merchant business. He would go to a certain town, sell, uh, buy a certain product, go to a different town and sell the money to a certain, you know, you know, certain merchants. And then he would come home and they would have enough money for another few weeks or a few months. But the problem was, is that the father couldn't go out anymore. He, got, he became very sick and he couldn't go. He was stuck at home. And the, the food ran out, the money ran out, and the wife goes over to the husband who's sick in bed. He says, please, you got to do something. We have no more food left. And the father's like, I can't get out of bed. I, can't, I don't have strength to do anything. So the father goes over to the mother and he says, the husband goes over to his wife and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to take, take the, we're going to borrow some money, take this money. You're going to go to the, I'm going to tell you exactly where to go, what to buy, who to go to and what to sell. And this is, you know, and then come back and we'll have some money until I get better and then I'll be able to go out of myself. So she said, fine. They went, they borrowed money. They, you know, she took the, she took the money. He took, she took, she gave, she took the directions exactly to the T. She went to this town. She bought, she bought this product and she went to another town and she started selling it. And she started seeing that she had a kind of a knack for business. She was able to finagle. She was able, and she did this, you know, like two, three times. And she made quite, you know, a nice sum of money. And she was about to leave the final town. And all of a sudden she starts feeling her pockets. And she realizes that her money, everything that she made in the past few weeks were all gone. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. And she's running frantically from one side of town to another side of town. She's looking at all the Jews. That maybe you find a purse. Maybe you find some, some money. And she gave it. There's a simon. This is, I was a black velvet bag tied with a red string. And it was, you know, she was going and she was crying to every Jew that she saw. Finally, she went over to a Jew. And a Jew said, well, you know what? I had a friend of mine that just found a bag like that. She's like, she runs over to, you know, to, to this person. She knocks on the door. And she says, you, I think you found my, 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 my bag of money. And she gives a sign, and he's like, you know what? I did find that money, but you lost it in a public place that's full of non-Jews. The halacha is, is that you're miyayish, that you gave up hope. And if you gave up hope, then I could keep it. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, I need the money. This is going to feed my starving children. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. The halacha is you gave up hope. And she's going, they're going back and forth. They said they're going to, take, they're going to go to Bethany. Then they go to the rabbi. And they go to the rabbi of the town. The rabbi of the town was none other than Rabbi Yitzchak Elchan Inspector. And they go over to the rabbi. And she presents her case. He presents his case. And then they go. And uh, the rabbi goes over to the wife, to the woman. And he says, listen, did your husband know that you lost the money? She's like, no. How does he know? I'm all the way over here. He's sick in bed all, you know, at home. He's like, there's no way that he would know. So the rabbi goes and he tells the person who found the money, you have to go and return the money back to the, back to the woman. He's like, why? She must have given, she was in a non-Jewish place. She gave up hope. The aha is that it belongs to me. And the rabbi says, that's true under certain circumstances, but it's not her money. She went under the, she was a messenger of her husband. And if her husband didn't give up hope, and he didn't give up hope because he didn't know about it. And if he didn't give up hope, that means that it goes back to her. Says the Chazonish. Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. And he says that if you want to know how that somebody that went through the Holocaust and survived, how are they going to be able to continue? Because if God, who's the owner of this entire world, if he made you alive today, each and every single one of us, doesn't only relate only to people that, that got out of the Holocaust. If God made you alive today, that means that God didn't give up hope on each and every single one of you. And if God didn't give up hope on each and every single one of you, that means that you're not allowed to give up hope. And this is what the Chazon Ish told Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. The 
calculations that many people make in their life is often triggered by their emotions and not by their intellect. Let's say someone's going through difficulties in Panasat and finances, and they say, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't give myself. Maybe I shouldn't give a tenth of my money to charity. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I shouldn't be so careful on, on the hashkachada, the, the food that I bring home to my children. Because, you know, if I go and I buy somewhere else in a lower level, I'll be able to buy more. And they start making all these, all these calculations. The problem with making these calculations is that not very often, 99% of the calculate we're, we're really wrong. We're really way off target. The, and the, the Medrash brings down that Lamech, in a time of Adam Rishon, between Adam Rishon and Noach, Lamech had two wives. One was Adam and one was Tzila. Now, the wife separated from, they didn't want to have any more children from their husband Lamech because they knew that the, there was a curse on Cain. There were the sons of Cain, and the curse on Cain, the seventh generation, the children are going are, are gonna to die. And not only that, they also knew that there's going to be a flood coming. They said, what is the point of having children and going and there's going to be uh, you know, a flood and they're all going to be destroyed and we have a certain curse and we're all going to be destroyed? Very, very common nowadays. Sometimes I get this and people say, what's the point of bringing children to this disgusting world? Make our own calculations. Maybe it's better not to. And the, they decided they were going back and forth and Lemech couldn't convince his, his wives you know, to change their mind. So they decided they're going to go to the Gadol Adol, which was none other than Adam Rishon. And they went over to Adam Rishon. And they, Adam hears both sides. And Adam says, Adam Rishon goes and says, you can't make calculations for God. He says, how can you go and make calculations for God? You have to do your obligation. So all of a sudden, they responded back to Adam. Kvod Arav, Adam Rishon, my dear grandpa. says, you separated from your wife. Hava. 130 years. So you're also making calculations. And he says, you know what? You're right. And he went and he became he went back to, to together with his wife. And because of that, they had a child that was named Shays. And Lemech and Tila, one of the wives, had came back together and they had a child named Naama. From Shays, who comes from Shays? None other than Noach. Who did Noach marry? Naama. Says the people that said there's no hope. The people that gave up and everything and said that said there's no point. Why? We know the future. We know that it's going to be desolation. There's going to be des- destruction. There's no point of anything. They made the calculations. But the calculations were so wrong that if they would have done, their, their calculations were so misleading that their source of miscalculations was a source of no more continuation of humanity. They are, what they needed to do is they needed to step back. And that's what we have to do many times. We have to step back. In the midst of our troubles, and where we feel the entire world is crumbling down, and we think we know what we need to do, and we say, you know what? Therapy is not right for us. And we say, we don't need medication. You know how many times, and I get this so many times, and, and it's, it's one of the most difficult things for me to, because then I have to really up, confront people in, in such, in a way that I really don't like. And I don't have a problem confronting people. But this is when people have, you know, psychological issues. And they're like, there's a demon in me. Or there is, I, I'm possessed. And I'm like, no, you have a chemical imbalance. You need a psychiatrist. You're like, no, I don't need a psychiatrist. I needed it. I'm like, you don't. You know, you have classic symptoms of psychiatric, you know, whatever it is that they're dealing with. You have to go and see a psychiatric help. And I even asked them, there are many times that I've dealt with these people and I said, when, you, when they were on medication, did it help? Yes. But it, I know it's a demon. <laughs> I'm like, your time, I'm like, no. 
Like you have to go. We make our own calculations. We think we know exactly what is the best for us. There are many times in our life that we have to take a step back. And then we have to take that step back and say, you know what? God, only you know what's best. One of the most famous escapes from, from the Holocaust was known as the, as the Wetzler Verba. Ooh, I'm forgetting the... Anybody know what I'm talking about? Report. Wetzler, yeah, that's what it is. The Wetzler, Wetzler Verba Report. So what happened was, and you could uh, research this, it's fascinating. So what happened was there was, there was um, two people that were in the Holocaust. One was named Alfred Wetzler, and the other was Rudolf Verba Rosenberg. And they, um, you know, went into the concentration camps right when it started. Uh, they were one of the first um, uh, innovators, and uh, they uh, slowly rose in rank. And they went from being from the lowest rank, and the, the Nazis, Yimach Shema, went and they slowly raised them. To the point that they were in charge, they were the official secretaries. The, the, the Germans kept meticulous records until they burned them, but they kept meticulous records. And the, these two people, Wetzler and Verbo, they, they were sitting over there and they were copying and they were writing down these reports of what was transpiring in, in the concentration camps, in the labor camps. And they felt all of a sudden, they see what, they have all the documentation right there. They feel like the world needs to know. It wasn't back then when everybody had an iPhone and decided to do a, do whatever it's called, a video. Um, yeah, what, yeah, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. They're doing a video and publish it online and then everybody sees it. There was no way of knowing it. There was no, there was no the communication there was only by snail mail. That the, that's the only communication that was possible. So they decided that they need to go and show the world what's going on. So they... At the risk of their own lives, they started copying down the, the meticulous reports that the Germans gave them. And they made copies. And they decided that eventually they're going to go and they're going to show this to the world. It came a point in time where they had a significant amount of information. And they decided they need to show this to the world. But the problem was they were stuck in the concentration camp. They were stuck in Auschwitz. How are they going to be able to go and get out? So they were thinking and they, they, they decided that they're going to go and they're going to try to escape. Now, where they were, there was, um, it was the... In a, a certain camp in, in Auschwitz, there were three main camps. And in those three main camps, there was 29 secondary camps. And along each of the three main camps, there was electrified barbed wire. And there was a post every 10 yards of, a not, of another Nazi with a machine gun and a light tower. And then there was a secondary gate that surrounded everything. And that was non-electrified. But it also had a tower, uh, you know, a, a Nazi with a machine gun and every 10 guards with a light tower. And they were thinking of how they were going to go and escape. And they're trying to figure out, not, time is going, months go by. Until finally, the Nazis were building another country, another area. It was, uh, oddly, it was called Mexico. I was also surprised. It was called Mexico or maybe Mexico. I don't know. So they were building this particular uh, area and they had a lot of wood. And they had these big, huge planks of wood that they were building the buildings with it. And who were dealing with the wood, who was moving the wood, who was, who was constructing, was none other than the Jews. And this is where Verba and, 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 Wex, uh, and Wetzler decided that maybe this is, their, their, this, is their, this is their out. And they knew that what happens is that the Jews go out of the concentration camp, the, the labor camps, and they go and they work. And when they come back, they come back into the outer, between the electrified fence and the non-electrified fence. And then they do a count. And if the count is same as the count in the morning, then everybody goes and the, there's a change of guards. But if there's even one count off, 
then the guards are not let off their post. They have to stay on for another three days until they search. If they search for three days and they don't find them, then they switch back to the um, back the guards. To, to the guards are dismissed. They're able to go home. But for three days, they're not allowed to leave. So the um, these two young brave soldiers decided that what they're going to do, and with the help of their of their friends, is that they're going to take the planks of wood. And they're gonna make they're gonna they're gonna make the pile of wood like they're supposed to, but they're gonna put a very very small space between the, the two piles that they'll be covered surrounding with wood, but it'll be enough for two people, both of them with their documents, and everybody agreed to it and they worked in it. They went and they put the, they built the woods in a certain the in a certain manner over a period of a few days that it would look natural, and eventually they went and when nobody was looking when the Nazis weren't looking they removed the top layer the two guys jumped into this hole and the Jews covered it with another three layers of plank of wood that no one would be able to go and, uh, and figure it out. Now, the Jews also knew that the Nazis used dogs. They used about 300 dogs to sniff out to find any of the Jews if they're missing. But they had a tactic that they would take kerosene and they would take this certain type of Russian tobacco and they smeared all over themselves that would sort of like discombobulate the dogs and they were able to go around. So they're sitting in this hole they have this kerosene and they were able to, to, to get the kerosene and the tobacco. They smeared it all over themselves and they're sitting over there. And everybody goes back and they're doing the count. And the Germans are doing the count and they realize that two people are missing. So all of a sudden the people, the, the, you know, Verba and, and Wetzel are sitting over there and they hear the sirens go off. And they hear the lights go on and they hear dogs barking and everybody's rushing and they're sitting there nervous. They're not, know, you know, not knowing if they get caught, that's it. That's their death. Their instant, instant death. And they're sitting over there, and the night goes by, and they hear the dogs running back and forth. They hear the Nazis screaming in German back and forth, and they don't get caught. The next day, again, they're going all over. They even hear the dogs on top of them, walking on top of them. They hear the guards walking on top of them, and they don't get caught. They come out two and a half days. almost. They almost hit the third day. And all of a sudden, they're sitting over here. They're sitting over here and they haven't eaten in days. They're covered in kerosene and this tobacco. And all of a sudden they hear two Germans. One German goes up to the other and says, You know, Otto, maybe, maybe they're hiding in this pile of wood. And the other one's like, What are you kidding me? He says, You know how many times the dogs went past by over this? They're for sure not over here. And they're like, And the other one is like, The other German is like, You know what? But maybe they figured out a tactic to get rid of the sniffing of the dogs. And they're like, You know what? Maybe you're right. And they hear the two Germans going on top of them and starting to pick up this, the planks of wood. The plank of wood was about a half, uh, was a half a foot thick. And they're picking up one. And then they're going to the second one. There are three planks separating between them. And they're picking up the second one. At this point in time, they're sitting over there. They made little shivs of knives, like in prison. And they figured if they're going down, they're taking these Germans down. But they also know that if they capture them right now, they're done. They're going to be tortured and they're going to be killed and this is going to be their end. And they're sitting over there and they're hearing. The German is going and they're taking the second plank out. They take the second plank out. Light is starting to peek through. And they know that this is the end. This is where it's going to be end. All of a sudden, as the Germans are starting to lift the third plank, all of a sudden there's another German that they hear coming in the distance and they're calling them, whistling to them. They're like, come, they caught them. They're like, you caught them? And they jump off the planks of wood and they run off. And, they run off. and they're sitting over there. This, the, these two Jews are sitting over there shaking like... Are they coming back or are they not? Until they see that the light in the cracks are no longer there and night falls and they're waiting. They wait two hours till it's really nighttime and then they feel that they're safe. 
And they hear, this is the third night, and this is where the guards call off, and they go, well, they feel like they, they thought they found them, whatever it was, the search is called off. And they feel this is their moment to escape. <clears throat> now you have these two people that were sitting and starving for three days and three nights, and they're looking at the plank, and they're like, this is it. They grab the papers, and they start pushing the plank. The problem was is that they haven't eaten in three days. They barely slept in three days. They're soaked in kerosene. They're, they're fumes. They're lightheaded. They can't even move that, that plank. And they're trying and they're trying and it's not budging. And they're sitting back down after an hour of trying and they're like, that's it. We're going to starve to death. We came so close. We came so close and we can't make it. And they were like, it's done. And they were sitting there bemoaning their ill fortune and they're like, it's done. Until finally, one of them was able to convince the other and be like, you know what, let's try one more time. Let's use all our power possible and let's try one more time. And they went and they pushed as hard as they possibly can together. They pushed off the floor and they were able to nudge that log just a little bit. And the second that you see that you have a little bit of wiggle room, all of a sudden you get stronger. All of a sudden you feel the power that you've never had before. And they start pushing and pushing and it's wiggling and wiggling until finally they're able to tip it over and it rolls off. And they smell for the first time in three days some fresh air. They jump out and they run into the forest. When they run into the forest, the first person that they encounter is a German woman. But luckily for them, this German woman hated the Nazis. And she took them in, she fed them, she gave them, she gave them better, and she sent them on their way. And the next person they found was some Polish you know, person in the underground who was able to go and smuggle them out to Slovakia, to out of the border. And this is where they, they, they were able to capture the, the, the Wetzel Verba report. And this is a very, very famous report, and you see what details out in Germany. What happened in the Holocaust? Many times we think that God is, is finishing us. He's closing the doors. What did these two guys think about when the Germans were on top of them and were taking one plank after another? They were like, that's it. That's done. We came so close and that's it. This is, the, this is where we end. This is where we die. This is where our story ends. But little did they know that what God was doing is that there was no way if they barely moved one plank of wood, if there was three plank of woods, they were for sure would have died there. So God said, you know what? I need to get you out. So how many, I'm going to send the Germans to go and get you out. Now the Germans came and they took the first top two planks off. So that gave them the ability to be able to go and to be able to escape. There are so many times in our life that we think, why God hates me? Why Hashem is doing so many problems to me? What did I do? I'm religious. I keep Shabbat. I keep Shabbat. I keep Tzniot. I do everything. And this is why God repays me. And little do we know that what God is doing is God is removing those planks from on top of us. And he's removing and moving it so that we have the ability to push that final plank out there. What we have to do is to realize that we never, ever, ever are allowed to give up. We're never allowed to give up. Because we never know what the biggest problem in our life could be the greatest blessing that we would ever have. There's a Midrash Lekartov in Estelle. There's a very, very famous concept. And I'm sorry, we're going to go a little bit over so whoever does need to leave... I don't usually say this in Zoom because I don't have to, but being that we're alive, if, uh, um, in person, if anybody does need to leave, I don't feel insulted. You could please uh, you know, feel free to get up and uh, walk out. So there's a Midrash in Lekartov, a, a famous, famous saying, Yeshuat Hashem Ke'lev'ayin. Yeshuat Hashem Ke'lev'ayin is a famous, famous saying that the, that the sages say and is repeated numerous times by almost any speech that you hear about Emunah comes, comes this saying. The saying, the translation is Yeshuat Hashem Ke'ef'ayin means that the, the salvation of God come in a blink of an eye. You know what that means? That means that if, let's say you have somebody who is standing in trial in front of the king and all the information is presented to the king and the king decides this person is guilty. And then the king sees all of a sudden he has children 
and he has a wife and little kids, and they're crying, please let our dad serve, let our dad out, please, please. And the king takes that into consideration, but he still says, I'm sorry, the, the information that we have is so incriminating against him, he, he's guilty. And they sentence him to death, death sentence. And he goes into prison until the execution day. And the, the family is trying to hire the best lawyers, they're trying to make appeals, they're trying to do whatever it is that they could. But no matter whatever it is that they could, it's turned down. They tried the appeals, it's turned down. They tried to go get in front of the king, it was turned down. This person is sentenced to death. The day of the execution arrives. They go, and the executioner takes the prisoner out, and it brings him out to the, um, to the stage where he's going to be executed. And he's sitting over there, and he's looking at the executioner. The executioner takes out his sword, and is starting to sharpen it in front of him. And there's a crowd that's forming. And at this point, the guy thinks, that's it, it's done. The executioner finishes sharpening the sword, starts aiming, brings his sword down on the person's neck, and he's about to bring it up. And at this point, he's about to take the final swing, and this person, his life is done. You know what our sages tell us? Yeshuat Hashem Ke'ev means that even if you have a sword that's on your neck, and you're about to die, and there's no hope whatsoever, you're still not going to get hope, because Hashem could save you no matter what. There was once a, uh, a not-so-religious youngster in Hungary, like live your imagination. There's a twist. <laughs> so the depends on your emotional upbringing, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a youngster in Hungary that wasn't that religious, but he had two things that he was very, very meticulous and particular with. One was tefillin, and one was this concept Yeshuat Hashem that the blink of an eye could come the salvation of God. And it was the, you know the Nazis came to town. And he would always tell his friends, Yeshuat Hashem Kevavayin. That was his mantra. And the Nazis round him up, and his friend always got annoyed. Because they were not, also not religious. He says, really, Yeshuat Hashem Kevavayin? Do you still believe that now? And the guy's like, yeah, I believe that now. And they were put into cattle cars. And they were transported into the concentration camp. And his friend goes over to him, he says, Yeshuat Hashem Kevavayin, you still believe that? And he's like, I still believe it. And then they get into the concentration camp, and they're standing in line. And this is the infamous line that they have to go either right or left. Right means that you live. Left means that you... No, I'm sorry. Yeah, right means that you live. The left means that you die. And they're sitting over there. And he goes over to his, to his friend. And he says, Yeshuat Hashem Kavayin, you still believe? He says, I still believe. It's their turn. Both of them go left for death. They're sitting over there. And his friend goes over to him. And he says, Yeshuat Hashem Kavayin, you still believe? He says, I still believe. They get transported to the gas chamber. They get put into the gas chamber. Again, he asks his friend. He's like, I'm going to get him. He says, Yeshuat Hashem, really, you believe now? He's like, I still believe. Yeshuat, God can happen at any, at any point in time. God can save us. The doors lock. He looks at him. He says, you still believe? He says, I still believe. The gas is starting to come out. And they know they have a few moments left to live. He goes over to his friend. He says, look around. He says, you really still believe? And he says, I still believe. And at that moment, all of a sudden, the door swings open. A Nazi comes in with a mask. And he says, I need someone to carry boxes. And he goes over to the guy who thinks Yeshuat Hashem Kevavayin. His name was Mati. And he goes over to him and says, you, come here. And Mati, as the gas is coming out, Mati is leaving. And he turns around to his friend. And his friend has tears in his eyes. And he goes to him and says, you know, Mati? He says, you're right. His last words that his friend said to him is, please say Kaddish for me. How did this story come out? It was an old man that was on Simchat Torah. He was saying Kaddish and he was crying. And the rabbi went over to him. And he says, why are you crying? It's Simchat Torah. It's, you're saying, you, what, what is it that you're crying for? And he says, I'm crying for my friend. Because I'm saying Kaddish for my friend. 
because he didn't believe the Shuat Hashem Kerev Ayin, and he relays over the over the story. Rabbi David Asher goes and brings down a story that a woman came over to him with severe issues, health issues. She had fatigue. She was no. There was like there was everything. There was so many problems going on with her, and she went from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, and they couldn't figure out what's wrong. Till finally they said, you know what, you go to a certain special clinic in Minnesota, that's where you'll be able to, that's the best chance that maybe they'll be able to diagnose you. And she goes and she says, fine. And she makes an appointment. They can't make an appointment, it's so busy because it's one of the top clinics, they can't make an appointment another three months out. She couldn't even make an appointment for the top specialist. She had to go and settle for somebody that would be able to see her. So she goes and she goes into this, um, uh, she settles for this appointment in three months. Three months go by and she's about to get on the plane. And travel to the appointment. And all of a sudden she hears that her grand... She had a grandchild. She had a simcha. And if she goes, she's going to miss the bleach. She's going to miss what she... You know, the, the simcha. And she's thinking back and forth. And she says, you know what? So I'm not even seeing a top specialist. Yes, I waited three months. But you know what? I'm not going to go. She misses the flight. And she goes and she participates in the simcha with her uh, with her grandchild. And she's, she's sitting over there. And the next day after the simcha, she starts deteriorating really bad. And she's getting very sick. And all of a sudden, she's like, she goes to God. And she says, you know what? Tomorrow is supposed to be my appointment day. Tomorrow at noon is supposed to be my appointment day. She says, God, you don't have to make me travel to Minnesota to get my diagnosis. You can have it happen right here in Brooklyn. And she's she after she finishes this prayer, she starts thinking. She says, you know what? She says, Let me, why don't I go to my trusty pediatrician? He has seen me for 27 years. He knows me better than anybody else. Let me just go to him. So... She goes, she makes an appointment for her pediatrician, even though she's not a pediatric patient. Mm-hmm. And she goes in over there. He looks at her and he diagn- and he looks, he looks at all of a sudden. He's like, oh yeah. He said, you have uh, something that's called Bartonella. This is a uh, co-infection of Lyme disease. And she's like, she's been tested by numerous places for Lyme disease. But she's never been tested for the co-infections for that. And he gave her prescriptions. He gave her the drugs that she needed for that. And she got healed. There's so many times that we think that our salvation is going to be, you know what it's going to be, and I'm not you know, putting this down, you should. My, when I see a Kabbalist in Israel, when I go, and you should go, and I'm not putting that, but there are many times where that God is the one that gives you the salvation, not the Kabbalist, not the rabbi, it's only HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's the only one who gives you salvation. You need something, that's who you need to go to. Yes, you should go to the rabbis, yes, you should get blessing, but the salvation can happen anywhere. The salvation can happen even in your own, in, even in your own backyard. There was once a rabbi that was, uh, you know, during the time of the Nazi occupation, he went to shul for Rosh Hashanah, and he left. And he was turning when he was returning home. He was wearing his his kittel. Kittel is like a white. Um, whoever's not familiar, it's like a white. Uh, it's not a. Like a trench coat, like a white trench coat. Yeah, I guess I was gonna say cloak, but it's not a cloak. That's like a. Oh, yeah, it's like a white long robe, but you can think about it, that, you, you know, denotes the purity, and this is what uh, many people wear on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So he was walking in the streets with this, and all of a sudden, a Nazi sees him, and he rushes over a Jew, publicly wearing a white, you know, like, prayer shawl, like, it was, that was it. He was rushing over to them, and he was screaming in German, that's it, this Jew is going to die. And this particular Jew, he was right by his front, he was about to unlock his door, he was so close to home, and suddenly he had a neighbor, he had a, uh, I believe it was a Polish neighbor, who saw, you know, went and he started screaming at the Jew, and he was screaming at the, at the Jew and at the Nazi. He was motioning like this, like like uh, what is it called with a hand, like kill basically kill him, 
and he was pointing at the Jew to go and kill him. So the Nazi, and he was screaming at the Jew, and he was screaming at the Nazi guard to go and kill the Jew. He wanted the Jew dead. And the, uh, and the Nazi didn't understand what he was speaking. He spoke a different language. So he goes over to the Jew. He says, what is this guy saying? And the Jew quickly thought on his feet, and he said, I just daven unisanatokov. Unisanatokov is, is a prayer that, you know, you pray that says that who is going to be the one that decides who lives and who dies? Only God. So quick on his feet, he says, oh, you want to know what my neighbor is saying? He says, he wants to kill you. He's doing this. He wants to kill you. And he says, he wants to kill me. He points his gun at this, at this Polish guy and he kills this Polish guy and he murders him and he's so angry and he just walks away. He says, you want to know what you shwata shem kafayim? It's not only that salvation comes from outside. Sometimes, and not only that it comes from your backyard, sometimes it comes from your own mind. God puts your own... Who would have thought to say, when you're sitting there with a gun pointed at your face, thinking that this is your end, you're going to be able to think on your feet and be like, yeah, he just wants to kill you. Like, because it's God that put the thoughts in, in, in his mind. The Yeshua Hashem Ka'afayin is everything is from, you know, from Hashem. Oh, it's so late and we have so much more to speak about. Okay, let's, we'll, we'll skip a little bit, but let's, let's try to get to, uh, a few. Okay, it is, okay. Okay, so the Dumna Magid goes and gives a, a certain mashal, uh, certain uh, you know story that there was once two partners and they were traveling, and uh, one of them was very sick, very frail, had a lot of issues, a lot of medical issues, and another one was very strong, very robust, huge, like seven foot twelve, you know, like huge, uh, you know, person, like muscles that only belong on elephants, you know, like someone who doesn't from a different world. And, it, you know, you think that, okay, the strong one will at least help the weak one, but he always put the weak one down. Be like, well, you can't lift this tree. And he would, like, go, and he would really put the other person, other person down. And they're traveling, and they get to the certain, uh, certain town, which happened to be the capital of where the king lived, the palace. And they're sitting over there, and they're traveling. And as they're traveling through the town, the king had two trusty workers that died. Number one was the king's... Uh, personal doctor passed away and number two the king's personal bodyguard passed away and the advisor mm-hmm. said okay we'll get you a replacement and they did find a replacement they found the best doctor mm-hmm. in the country and they brought him in and they found the strongest guy in the country and they brought him in to be the be- to be the the, um, the bodyguard the personal bodyguard of the king now the king is seeing his two applicants in front of him and he says you know what how do I know that you're really the best doctor how do I know that you're really the strongest person so the Doctor goes and says, you know what? Find me the sickest person you know, and I'll heal them, and I'll prove it to you. And the strongest guy says, find me the strongest person you know, and I'll beat him, and then you'll see. And the doctor says, okay, fine. The king says, okay, fine. And then as they're going, they, all of a sudden the advisor sees who they see walking. A guy looks like he should be six feet under, and a guy that is seven feet above. And they're like, this is a perfect, this is the, it's like it, God sent us directly to, to our doorstep. And they quickly, the king's guards around them and says, come, you're coming with us. And the doctor goes and sees a sick person. He's never seen a sick person like this. It boils that are coming out of his eyes. Like the, you know, he had like like the most severe di- diseases. And he went and he and he treated this person until this person was fully healthy and strong. And then the strong man goes and sees this seven foot thirteen guy. He just grew an inch. He sees this guy um, with muscles. He's like, you know what? If I could beat this guy, that means I could beat anybody. The king says, I was going to hire him without even. That. He says, you think you could beat him? Go ahead, the chavot. You know, let's see what you got. And they, you know, they start. They he gets thrown into this arena. This giant, this guy was seven foot fourteen. His ball throws into the arena, and he's sitting over there, and they're pounding at each other. And within a short period of time, the king's bodyguard, who was next to beat, really destroyed him. He had tap 
tactics that he knew. He learned jujitsu and Brazilian martial arts, and he also learned Krav Maga and Israel. He knew everything. And he went and he destroyed this person, became bruised, broken, and d- disrupted inside and outside. And now all of a sudden the king says, okay, you know what? We have what we need from you. You guys are able to go. All of a sudden, you have this 7 foot 15 guy. He's sitting over there. He's walking in a wheelchair. And meanwhile, the weak friend, all of a sudden, is sitting there robust and strong. And he's sitting over there. And he's like, oh, you need some help? What's you want me to push the wheelchair? I can't because you're too big. Because you're 7 foot 16. But it doesn't matter. I, you have over here, all of a sudden, the, 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 entire, the entire scenario switched. You want to know what Yeshua Hashem can find? It's not only that we have the ability that our whole life will be turned upside down for the better. But also, unfortunately, it could turn upside down for the worse. That we owe, no, even if you're living a life that it's comfortable and it's great and everything is perfect, everything is great where you are. Giving up is also giving up thinking that you don't have to do anything positive. Because Yeshua Hashem Kelevayin could also be a possible that unfortunately, the, just like the ladder switches upside down and the weak guy could become the strong guy, so too the strong guy could become the weak guy. The, there was once a person, I, there was once a person that felt sick and Those are the problem when I speak to a live crowd. This is, by the way, this is one of the reasons what we started doing is starting doing a women's only class. Because when I speak to a bunch of names, I'm speaking to a bunch of words on, you know, on that. But when I'm speaking to a live crowd, based on the different cues that I get, I speak about different things, different pop, you know, there's, there's different sounds when things pop up. So whenever I speak at a live class, I always speak about things that I've never intended to speak about. And it always lasts a lot longer than I intended it. When I speak to a bunch of names on a screen, it's great, it's good, I'm not complaining. But I am. But it's it's something that okay, I speak about what I need to, what I need to speak about unless things pop into my head, which with my brain happens quite often, but not as much as when it's live. So what can I do? I apologize that I'm going overboard. Um, uh, but but what can I do? This is this is such an imperative topic. It's such an important topic that this has the ability to change your life. You know what the the problem is that you'll come out leaving this class with a lot of information, but more stories than information. I did that on purpose. Because this is a topic that it doesn't help if it's up here. Never giving up. I could have gave you a 30-second class. It could have been a meaningful minute, one minute. I could have said, never give up. I would have said you some nice verbiage of Yeshua Hashem Kehavayin, and we could have been done. Then it would have stayed up here. The purpose is to go and implement it in here. So you have two options when you leave out here. You have an option of like, yeah, okay, never give up. Or you could have an option of like, I'm never giving up. You know? (laughs) Israel, whatever it is, I don't know. I know whatever, you know, vaccines, I don't want to get into whatever it is. So it's a different class possibly maybe one time. But in any case, when um, there was a certain person in Posen, a Jew in Posen who fell sick, and um, the doctors gave up on him. So there's, there's, no, there's nothing that could, that, that, that could be done. To the point that the king's doctor was traveling to town, and the rabbi of the town was none other than Rabbi Akiva Eger. And Rabbi Akiva Eger says, please do me a favor, diagnose this person. See what's going on with him. And they, the doctor, the king's doctor went and they diagnosed him. And he says, you know what? All the other doctors, I agree with their diagnosis. This guy has no hope. And the, you know, the rabbi says, he has no hope? He says, what would have happened if the king has this diagnosis? So the king's doctor was like surprised by that. He's like, actually, the king did have this diagnosis. Uh, but the king has thousands upon thousands of people at his bequest. There is a treatment to it. There is a very rare and exotic bird that can treat this ailment. But the king has thousands upon thousands upon people on his fingertips that he was able to go and send them out to the, to the jungles and to the forest, and they were able to capture this bird. And he said, and and, and he said, you know, you Jews in Posen, you have all, there's no way that you'll be able to capture. So according to the medical diagnosis, yes, there's no hope. 
So the rabbi says, please explain to me, what was the treatment? And he said, you catch a certain bird, you do the X, Y, and Z, and this is the treatment. And the rabbi says, thank you very much. And he and they went, they parted ways. Rabbi Kiva went, and he started praying to God. And he says, master of the universe. He says, you have a Jew's life in danger. His family is depending on him. His, you know, his children, and they're going on, and he's praying, and he's praying. And as he's praying, suddenly he hears this weird squawking sound in the attic. And Rabbi Kiva runs up, and he sees this very, very funny looking bird. And he takes the bird, and he brings it to the you know, pharmacist of the town, and he tells him exactly what to do. He says, you take this bird, and he exactly, he doesn't even know how the bird looked. And what, he says, you take this bird, and you go, and you, um, you do X, Y, and Z, the same thing that the doctor, of the king's doctor told him, and, you do, and he gave him the exact treatment that he has to do for this, uh, for this, for this patient. And they did it, and, the, and Rabbi Kivaker says, save me the wings. And he saved them the wings, and he put the wings on the side to show for the future of the miracle that happened. And this guy got healed. Later, when the, king, the king's doctor was traveling back, Rabbi Kiva Eger called him over, and he, says, and he showed him the wings. And Rabbi Kiva Eger didn't even say anything. The, the, the king's doctor said, looked at him, and he said, only to the Jews this would have happened. This wouldn't have happened to anybody, to anybody else. He says, you know why? Because you never, ever give up. And when everybody tells you you should give up, that's when you don't give up. You look at our, our matrix. You look at Imaot. You look at Sarah. You look at Rivka Rachel. You look at Chana. You know Chana? She was, she didn't have any children for 19 years. And Elkanah, her husband, says, I am better to you than 10, than 10 children. Give up hope. Basically said they gave up hope. During the time where she felt that everybody gave up on her, that's when she pushed the, the hardest. And then what happened? And then she, gave, she, had, you know, she was pregnant. And she gave birth to a leader of the generation. We know that in Shabbat, page 31a, it says, see, one of the things that they ask you when you get up to heaven after 120, it says, Tzipita Yeshua. Did you anticipate salvation? So our rabbis explained to us it's not only our salvation regarding our uh, the Mashiach, which nowadays everybody is anticipating even more than ever before with all the tragedies that unfortunately not only the Jewish world, the Jewish but the entire world is going through. So everybody is saying Mashiach is coming right now. Everybody is on, on the brink of it. But there's another interpretation to Tzipita Yeshua. Did you anticipate the salvation? And that is, did you anticipate your salvation? Oh, you've been dating for X amount of years and you're not married yet? Did you give up or did you anticipate the salvation? Oh, you're sick because you have X, Y, and Z medical issues? Did you give up or did you anticipate the salvation? Because we are, as the Jews, are never, ever allowed to give up. We always have to be mitzapim li'ishua. We always have to go and, and anticipate the salvation, no matter where we're holding. Yes, you have a terrible marriage and you think this is, you married the wrong person. But did you anticipate that it's going to get better? Did you go and did you try? Yes, you're in debt. You don't have any panasah. Did you anticipate that you're going to be wealthy? Did you go and you anticipate your salvation that you need? I want to finish off with two, two final thoughts. Yeah, we're going to have to skip a little bit. We're going to finish off with two final thoughts. And that is... There was once a father that was walking with his 10-year-old son in Siberia. Whoever hasn't been to Siberia, good. It's cold. All right? You're not going to get a tan over there. He, he was walking through Siberia, and the only way that they wouldn't freeze to death is that they have to keep on moving. They have to keep on moving. This reminds me. I have to say this because it came up. I'm sorry. My, my brother just told me this story. He told me before. It's hilarious. I can't say the full story. Maybe at a different time. But my brother was in Israel, 
And uh, his friend says, you want to go to Tzfas? So, remind me a different time. Maybe I will say the full story. I got to tell you. Um, and, and he's like, okay, you know, one of the things that is a requirement when you go to Israel to learn and get closer to God is you have to be spontaneous. Otherwise, you don't have the full experience for whatever reason. I don't know. So, and that's not true, by the way. I'm saying that sarcastically. So, don't think that you have to do that. Anyway, so he goes and he decides he's going to go to Tzfas. But um, guys in general don't plan so far ahead. You know, when you tell, you know, a guy, you know, you're, you're traveling to Israel, so please pack. So they'll pack, you know, when the cab is on the way to the house. That's when they'll start packing. A girl will pack just in case about a year beforehand while she's still in 11th grade because maybe I'll go. So there's a little bit of a difference. So guys, when they go on a trip, um, they sort of kind of wing it because, you know, you should watch this fine. You know what it is. They hold it very closely. So they, go, they, get, they get on the bus and they go and they travel to Tzfas. Only later do they find out they have nowhere to stay. So um, he calls my sister, who I have two sisters who live in Israel, and um, they start making phone calls until they finally found them a place to, to sleep in a dorm. The problem was that this dorm is occupied by other people. It says, go to this dorm, you find an empty bed. It was the type of thing, you know, it's in Israel. You know, you find an empty When I was in Israel in Yeshiva, there has been more than one time that I wanted to go to sleep and there was somebody in my bed. Um, and it was kind of normal it wasn't like i'll be like all right you know either you kick him out or you figure some other sleeping arrangement so i mean this is back before they even had air conditioning in the dorm so i don't know what goes on in israel now so in any case so he goes he gets over there and he gets into this uh him and his friends get into this dorm and um it's in sfas which is it's a mountain and it gets you know quite cold and for whatever particular reason this open source dorm you know the window was broken like not like didn't lock it was broken as it was a hole and the wind just came in. And for whatever reasons, his friends happened to get blankets. And he did it. And he was, t- he was saying that in order for him to be warm, he had to do push-ups. In order that he gets warm, and then he tries to fall asleep. But then he gets cold, then he gets up, and he's doing push-ups again. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, there are many... T- I have to finish the story at a different time. But um, it's actually hilarious. <laughs> so, um, so they, uh, they... You know, okay, fine. I'll, t- I'll talk to you now. <laughs> so he's sitting over there. And um, he's doing push-ups, and, and he's trying to get warm, and then he tries to fall asleep. And it keeps on, the cycle is, meanwhile, his, his, uh, dorm, his <laughs> dorm mates, which is his friends, are, are sleeping. Then all of a sudden, um, you know, he's sitting over there, laying down on his bed. And by the way, I don't know if you know, Israel mattresses back, you know, about 10, 15 years ago. They're, they're, what you could use for them is if you break off a piece, you, you actually could use it to wash dishes, because it's made of the same sponge material. So he's sitting over there on this sponge. And he's and he's he's looking up, and suddenly, the door opens up, and somebody walks in, and he's sitting over there, and all, he you know where my we we all speak Hebrew, and it's an Israeli dorm, and meanwhile he hears the guys like, uh, and he's he's like someone's in my bed, and he's sitting right in front of my brother, my brother's sitting over there, he's like not knowing what to do. He's like, he's like, he's, he's open, but he doesn't know if he should turn around or not. You know, he's sleeping in someone else's bed. He's in a certain, and the perfect person that comes in is that he comes into his particular bed over there. He's sitting over there, frozen, not sure what to do. This is, this is where, where he's stuck. Uh, to be honest, I don't know how this, I don't remember how the story ends and how it happened, if he got out or not. Um, because I was laughing so hard that tears were coming down, so I couldn't hear anything else, you know, at, you know, after that, just from the fact of picturing this, this aspect. And I don't know if you've ever had to do that before. You had to warm up by, by doing exercise so that you don't get cold. 
I have been in that situation before. It's hilarious after the fact, right? <laughs> While you're in the fact, it's something very, put in that, that you're sitting over there literally shivering and someone's looking over you and be like, oh, is in my bed? <laughs> and you're not sure what you're doing over there. I didn't hear the rest of the story, so I don't know, you know, what, you know, what happened. Anyways, back to the depressing story in Siberia, um, because somehow I felt it's related, Siberia and Tfas. Um, so anyways, you had this father and this 10-year-old son. He's walk- they're walking in Siberia, and they have to walk so they don't freeze to death. Not only push-ups, they're walking, they, have- they can't stop moving. And meanwhile, the father realizes that he's not going to make it. And he's trying to think, they're in Siberia. He's like, what am I going to give my parting words to my 10-year-old son? He's the oldest son. What am I going to tell him? This, um, this, the, the father, was, was, his name was Rabbi Schreiber. And he's thinking, and he's trying to tell, and he also knew that his wife recently gave birth to a child, and his wife was also not doing so well. So he knew that it could be very well be that this 10-year-old son is going to be by himself in the future. What are they going to say during this, these times and how to make sure that not only his son will survive, but also he would stick to, to Judaism, he'll stick to the Yiddishkeit, he'll stick to the religion. So he, as he's walking, he's thinking, and suddenly the father goes to his son and he says, remember when you were, you know, about a year ago, you were playing hide-and-seek and, seek, and um, you thought you found the greatest hiding place and you sat in that hiding place until it was nighttime. And then it was nighttime, you came out and you realized something very shocking that hurt you so much. And you looked around and you saw that nobody's looking for you anymore. You thought you had the greatest hiding spot, but all your friends gave up, they went home. They didn't even bother looking for you. And you came home and you ran home crying and you're saying, my friends didn't even look at me. This little nine-year-old boy is sitting in there and is crying. And now, as a 10-year-old, he's looking at his father. He's like, yeah, I remember that, but why are you bringing that up now? And the father goes over to his son and he says, you know, many times in life, God hides from us. And he wants us to search for him. And he wants us to find him. But you want to know what the greatest kicker is? That when you feel that God is hiding from you and you don't bother looking for God. He says, you should always know that during this time of hardship that we're walking over here, I don't know if I'm going to make it. So, but one thing you have to know that God is always with us. God is always going to be with you. But he may be hiding. And if he's hiding, you have to make sure, just like you wanted somebody to go and find you, you have to make sure that you never stop searching for God. That you never stop looking because God wants you to find him. Not long after that, his father did pass away. And he was able to reach his mother who didn't last that much longer. And him and his brother were the only survivors of the family. And they ended up getting you know, sent to Tehran. And eventually they ended up getting sent to Israel, to an Israeli kibbutz that was anti, anti-Judaism. And they shaved off the peot, they shaved off the, the everything, and they were fed non-kosher food, and they wanted to get religion out of the boys. And one time they took a trip to the Kotel, for whatever reason. And this boy was, was walking, and he saw a religious person. And he ran over to the religious person, and he says, please save me. It was none other than he was 11 years old. He says, please save me, save me. I, I, I'm, I'm stuck over here. I want to be religious. And this religious guy is like, he's like, you know, you know like, I'm sorry. I, like, I, can't, I don't want to get involved. Like, who knows? This kid is coming up over here, looks clean shaved, you know, like, no pay-off, clean, like, buzzed haircut. He's like, I don't want to get involved with it. Finally, this boy tried begging him. Nothing was doing until finally he started quoting him Gemarot. Ten years old, he started quoting him. He was eleven years old now. He started quoting him Gemarot that he learned when ten years old when he was in, in the forest in Siberia with his father. And he says, "Please, I'm religious. Please, I'm begging you. They're killing us over here spiritually. Save us." 
And all of a sudden, this inspired a, a, a spark in this person. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it is I can. And he went and he was able to save him and his brother. Later, this person went on to learn in Panovich. And later, he ended up to be a marbit star. He ended up being a huge Talmud Chacham. But why, how is it that this boy was able to survive? And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Yes, we know the concept that we never give up. We know the concept that we have to keep on continuing our fight and we have to keep on pushing. But how? How are we supposed to do it? And the answer is that's how this boy did it. And that is that when you have the love of God for you and such a fire burning inside of you that you know that God is always there. God, yes, he may be hiding. But when you know that you always have to search for him and you will eventually find him and you have that desire, that burning flame inside of you, that's going to be able to give you the power to push up and never give up. That's going to be able to give you the desire to go and keep on pushing forward and never say, you know what, this is where my my end is. You will have the ability to push yourself if you have that flame. And this is what the flame that Yosef HaTzadik had. Yosef, you think about his, his, his life story, it's unbelievable. We said it many times, it's so inspirational. Probably one of the most inspiring stories that you could hear is from Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef went and his own brother sold him and he begged. These are people that are Gdolim. This was the Gadol, the, the gadol Adol of that generation were his brothers. They were the Gdolim, they were the Shvatim. The shift they called, he went over to them, he begged them, he says, please don't sell me. They didn't listen to him. And they sold him to the Arabs. And he was taken away. And at this point, he says, if this is what Judaism represents, you know when I would say that somebody has a right, maybe, maybe they have a right to say that, you know, my teachers did something wrong. When your teacher sells you as a slave to an Arab merchant that are selling, you know, spice, that's when you, but if they looked at you wrong, or maybe they didn't smile at you enough, or maybe they gave you a little patch, that's, that's where I would say, like, you know what, come to me when they sell you as slaves. Again, I'm not belittling whatever it is that people went through. People go through difficulties. But Yosef was sold by his own brothers. The righteous people, these are the people that represented Judaism. These are people that represented God. Yosef could have said, be like, checking out, I'm done. But not only did he check out, he continued fighting to the point that his wife, the most beautiful person, his master's wife, sorry, his master's wife, the most beautiful person in Egypt, went and tried to seduce him day in and day out, multiple times a day for a year straight. And he kept on fighting it. And he kept on pushing it off. He thinks, okay, now God is going to save me. You know what happened? He got thrown into prison for 12 years. Then you think, okay, you know what? When somebody comes over to you, the gadol adol, the right, and he sells you to Arab merchants, and you're still religious, and then you get a test for a year straight, and you still pass it. And then, instead of getting saved, you get thrown into a prison in Iran, in a dungeon with rats for 12 years. This is where you should probably give up at this point in time. But Yosef never gave up. Now, how is it possible that Yosef never gave up? How is it possible that we should never give up? And the answer is we have to take the lesson from Yosef. We have to take the lesson that we need to learn is that you have to have a strong desire of searching for God. And that's why when people ask me what is the best character trait in my own personal opinion when you're looking for somebody to marry, I say dvikut Basham, someone who desires to be close to God. Because once you have that desire, you have everything else. The person's going to be a good husband or a good wife. The person's going to be modest. When you have that desire to do good, when you have that flame inside of you that's burning inside of you, that you want to get closer to God, then nothing will stand in your way and you will never give up, no matter what throws down your path. Rabbi Leo Dessler goes and says that 
You want to know how a person receives heavenly assistance? It's proportioned to their perseverance of how much they push for something. And this is what the Baba Sali said also, that there is nothing that stands in front of the will. People think that, you know how I got where I got to? Because I have certain um, personality traits. Or maybe I have certain strong points that I'm able to succeed where I succeeded. That's not, where, that's not how you succeed. You know how you succeed? Because you desire that you want to succeed so badly. The Mirtha the, Melial the goes and says that you want to get the siyata dishmaya, you want to get that heavenly assistance. That depends on how much you persevere, how much you keep on pushing. You keep on pushing, no matter how much you fall down, you'll be like, you know what, God, no, I'm going to get back up. Yes, I fell, I did X, Y, and Z sins, but it doesn't matter, I keep on getting back up. Yes, I tried to get married, but I'm not married yet, but I'm not going to give up, I'm going to keep on going. Yes, I'm sick and I've tried every therapy, everything possible, but I'm not going to give up, I'm going to keep on going. Heavenly assistance comes when you don't give up. You want to have, see some, see never, ever, ever give up. And I want to finish off with one final thought. Final thought that really should be a class in itself. Maybe I will repeat it again because it's so important. And that is a question that people often ask. Let's use dating as an example. They go and they say, you know, I've been dating for so long and I cannot find my spouse. Then finally, God sent me somebody and we're dating. 10 dates, 15 dates, whatever circle you are in, doesn't matter. Three dates, one date, right? <laughs> Just hear about them. Um, <clears throat> you, and it, and it's, it's getting so close to engagement and everything is looking great and then they break it off. And then they come and say, like, why is God doing this to me? Like, just don't send me him. Don't send me her. Like, why do I need this false hope? Why do you send me, like, oh, you are going to get healed. You are going to be feel better, but then you don't go. Oh, you are going to go, and you are going to make this tremendous amount of money in this business deal, and then the last minute you lose everything. Better just don't give me anything of that. Why do I need to go, and why does God have to go and give me false hope and feel like I'm going to go and gain something? feel like I'm, my salvation is right here. I feel like Yeshua Hashem Gavayin. I see it. I see the finish line. I'm right there. And all of a sudden it gets pushed off another three miles back. It's not fear. Why? Why does God do that? So, I mean, the man of Biederman once says, says a story that there was a guy who had a very, very difficult time with Panasah. He was in, incurring so much debt that it was affecting him. It was affecting the family. Until finally one time, they're told that the father bought a lottery ticket and the numbers that he had won. And that's how they get into Shabbat. That they won the lottery. Millions and millions of shekels. Uh, this is Israel lottery. So um, they go over there. And you know, the second, generally when people buy a lottery ticket, they don't even, they're already thinking what they're going to do with the money. And who are they not going to mm-hmm. give it to? And uh, they're already having plans. But imagine what you have when you know you have the winning lottery ticket. And they go into Shabbat and everyone's like, we're going to do this. And the children are like, we're going to do this. And it's going great. Everything is going amazing. And the father's spirits are up. Everything is going beautiful. After Shabbat ends, they go and they look at, they review their ticket and they review the numbers and they realize that they didn't win. And the entire family is broken. The father is the only one. Expression doesn't change. And the children go to the father and says, Dad, how do you go through that? You, you know what we're going through. You know all the debt. You know better than everybody else what we're going through. How is it that you're not giving, that you're not breaking down? So the father goes very calmly and he says, Hashem Natan, Hashem Lakach, Yishem Hashem Hashem gives, Hashem takes, may God's names be blessed. And he goes on to explain, you know, many times we need certain atonements. We need certain kapalot. We need a, we need a certain atonement. 
And uh, it could be that maybe we need to lose a certain amount of money. Maybe we have to have some emotional you know, pain about thinking that we're going to get married and then some, something's supposed to happen. What God does in His infinite mercy is that God doesn't set you up with a person and then it gets you married and then breaks it off the marriage and then you go through that. Or maybe if someone needs to lose a million dollars for a certain atonement, God doesn't give you the million dollars and then takes it away from you. What God does in His infinite mercy is that God makes you think that you have it. God makes you think that you're all healthy. God makes you think that you found your zivuk. God makes you think that you're a multimillionaire right now. And then at the last moment, He takes everything away. Because that atonement can count as strong as if you had it, and God take it, took it away. So instead of, God put it, instead of God putting you through all the troubles of actually going through the marriage and then breaking it off, God gives you the greatest blessing possible and makes you think that you got it, and now takes it away, and now you have the atonement that you needed to. And this will open up a pathway to a tremendous amount of other blessings. So many people come and they say, like, why would God give me false hope? Why would God put me in a situation that I think that I end is that I finally got my salvation? You show Hashem God and it takes it all away. Like you want to know why? That's the greatest blessing that God could ever give you. Because God just gave you the greatest kapara atonement possible. You thought that you would be a multimillionaire and now you lost it. Guess what? It's as if you just lost a few million dollars. You know what atonement that is? Oh, you thought that you're getting married and now you got the, the, you lost it? It's as if you got married and you got divorced. You needed to go through that emotional you know, problems, emotional baggage. And you, t- got, you sort of checked off that box that you needed. It's the greatest blessing that you can have. So never ever think that no matter where, whatever situation you're put in life, that you should give up and be like, you know what, it's done. To the point that you think that you survived, that you think that you see the finish line, and then you're done also. You'd be like, you know what, after this, God showed me the end game. And then God took it away. Now I for sure give up. No, that's when you don't give up. That's when you keep on pushing. Because that's when you know that God is sending you the blessings that you need. So the blessing that I have to each and every single one of us is that no matter what God throws at us, and let it be only great. May we not have to deal with any of these situations that we have to feel that we're giving up. But if God forbid God puts us in a certain situation, may we have the ability, the power, and the desire to go and say, no matter what, I will never ever give up. With that, we'll open up to questions. Any questions over here? Okay, we have one question online. In practical terms, how do we anticipate personal salvations? That's actually a very good question. Um, so the question is like, okay, do we have to start daydreaming? Like, I'm married, I have kids, you know, who knows what. Um, maybe I have to start daydreaming that uh, I'm a multimillionaire, I'm a multi-billionaire. Maybe I have Jamie that I have children. Maybe I have to start daydreaming that I have, uh, you know, that I'm healthy. What is the, the practical application to anticipate salvation? And that is a very, very important aspect. And that is to know always that whatever God put you in, that's where you need to be. And God put you in there for a particular reason. Once you know that you're in a certain situation because you need to be there and you accept it, now all of a sudden that is going to be able to open the door and be like, okay, now that I accepted my situation, now I'm going to start praying. And by the way, they don't contradict each other. When you accept where you're holding, you should still pray for getting out of where you're holding. So you accept it, and then you go and you, you start praying. You want to know how the greatest way to anticipate salvation? It depends on your prayer. How strong is your prayer? If you're praying and you're like, oh, okay, fine, I could pray a million times, so I should get married, and I'm so married. God, please, I'm married. You That's, you're not anticipating salvation. You already gave up. You want to know how you can really test yourself when you anticipate salvation? When you give that prayer. And every prayer is that prayer. And sometimes you may fall. The prayers might not be up to par. 
No matter what, you get up in the next prayer, you bring it up to par. Any other questions? No? Wow, super clear. Amazing. Okay. Oh my gosh, such a late class. Okay. Question offline. Question offline. Okay. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for hosting. And may this house only be a house full of blessing. Bacha. Hatzlacha. Siyat Shmaya. Panasa. And Shalom Bayit. And Nachat from everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.